I'd like to say that um, before I get into the message, uh, I think we need a little education and, and updating. Uh, we're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr.'s birth in the civil rights movement tomorrow. Well, if you're a California kid like to me and grew up in Richmond, you couldn't spell civil rights. Because I grew up with black kids. They didn't know what civil rights was. But their mom and dad did because their mom and dad grew up in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. And they fled to California to get away from segregation. So as white kids and black kids that I grew up with in Richmond in the 40s and 50s and 60s and graduated with, they didn't know the struggle. And I say, there's a lot of black young people. They don't know the struggle. They've already joined a gang. And uh, our big problem with black young people today is not civil rights. It's uh, no father. I'm in a gang. The easiest way to make money is sell drugs. In trouble, just like white kids. In trouble, in trouble. But the cause, I, uh, I thought, I don't really know the civil rights cause. So I read a book by Stephen Oates called The Sound of the Last Trumpet. Stephen Oates happens to be a biographer, writer, wrote The Life of Kennedy, The Life of LBJ, and he wrote The Light of, of Martin Luther King. My eyes were open. I said, that is what the struggle was. Are you aware that in 1950, when King and civil rights and Ralph Abernathy were marching through parts of the South, they would meet black people who had never seen American currency. They were still getting script from plantation days. They were just sharecroppers. They never handled an American dollar. King on the, uh, in Washington, when he gave his I Have a Dream speech, he said a line that went this way. Over 100 years ago, we were given a check called the Emancipation Proclamation. I simply want us to cash it. When is it ours? Folks like us that are white said, well, we understand. No, we don't. You don't understand. You don't. I was just hoping a black kid in Richmond wouldn't beat me up. But I felt the same way about the white ones. They were all rowdies. I had to walk to the boys club with Boogie and Bulldog to get home alive. And they took care of me. I'm from redneck stock. My mother is a Missouri Joplin woman. My father, Wagner, Oklahoma. Rednecks. Culturally built to be racist. But I found out there's something bigger than racism. It's called the love of God. It's called being genuine Christians. But when King stood up for Rosa Parks and stood up against to join the Birmingham bus boycott. He wound up 
in jail in Birmingham. One year, I did an NAACP rally with uh, uh, Cynthia Marshall's mother, who was in that boycott. And she sang the opening of the meeting right here in Hercules. And I gave the message. I told Cynthia, I'm not going there if all we're going to do is bash the Republicans. I'm not going to, I'm not a political speaker. I'm a preacher. I'm a Bible man. I can argue for civil rights all day, and I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. I believe in treating people humanely. I don't care. And we're nervous right now. We got a white guy that even the Republicans are scared to death of. Nobody knows what he's going to do. Nobody knows how he's going to act. He makes us all nervous. It's why if you voted for Trump, nobody says it. We're all embarrassed for his manner. But I'm real glad he's for Israel. I'm real glad he's right on some things. But your Latino population, your black population are running nervous. How will he treat us? Will he be fair? Will he be fair? Let me set the stage here by reading from the letter that King, when he was in jail in Birmingham, had time on his hands, and all the white clergymen, Jewish, Christian, and even some black pastors, told him, it's not time, Martin. It's not time to be marching. Let's wait. Let's do this thing quieter. It was Tuesday, April 16th, 1963. Anybody remember that year? I graduated from high school. Yes, yes. Great people, 63. King had been arrested on Good Friday, April 11th, in a peaceful demonstration against the discrimination practices of Birmingham. And he writes to the pastors who told him, keep waiting, keep waiting. This is his letter from Birmingham, printed in the Birmingham Press. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers, And fathers at will and, and drown your sisters and brothers at whim. That would mean my son-in-law would be killed and six of my grandchildren because of the color of their skin. When you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that fun town is closed to colored children. And see, ominous clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky 
and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, how old, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respectable title, Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe distance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. I say to you, it's one of the values of this pastor and this church that you will never be diminished because of your social standing, your color, your gender, because in Jesus we're equal. And in society we're equal. And God, route out racism, route out chauvinism. If you don't know what to do with, with women, repent. Repent. They're made in the image of God. They've got value. They're better than just sex and babies. They have minds. They have souls. They have worth. And as long as I'm here, if you had to run me, I always thought I'd pastor in the South because I went to school in Texas. And I never met so many white folks with money that love God. And I thought, I could get used to this. But I know... I could have never made it in the South without being killed or fired. So God left me in the Bay Area. But I've lived long enough to see a mixed congregation, which is the heart of God. And today, when we are finished, we're going to form a circle and pray. We're going to pray for an inauguration this Friday. And this is a blue, blue, blue Trump-hating state. My bigger fear is the racism, the division, the panic, the fear. Daniel said God even sets up the basis of men to lead. He set up Nebuchadnezzar and saved him. So whoever God's going to do it through, Obama, Trump, whoever the next one is, 
I'm just praying nobody kills Trump and nobody will kill Obama. I don't want another president assassinated. But I want to say, we will fight. It is a biblical Christian mandate that we act lovingly towards all people. I must say this. If you are a lesbian or a gay here, I will love you, but I will not lie in the name of God and say that's a right choice. But we will feed you if you're hungry. My brother-in-law was dying as a homosexual in my home. For 22 months, his evangelical sister that he broke with fed him, clothed him, waited on him, and watched him die. And Richard Armstrong, Heard me one morning out in the lobby. We had to start taking him to the veterans for chemo treatments, had brain cancer. And Richard said, Pastor, how are you going to? Had to take him every day up to Fairfield. He said, Pastor, you need help. I'll, I'll get men. I'll get deacons. We'll help you. And you men, Andy, the different ones, uh, men. Ernie, I'll miss, there's men I miss. A bunch of you men took him. And Cheryl Palmieri led him to the Lord one day. Came over to our house and took him to lunch. And said, Richard, you need Jesus Christ. And he received Christ at lunch with Cheryl. God is against homosexuality, but he has not called me to hate them. He's called me to evangelize them, love them like I would a womanizer. Does God endorse womanizing? No, it's sin. What do we do? Love the sinner and don't love their sin. Accept them without approving what they do. I know I've got grandchildren doing things I don't approve but I still give them money to buy gas. I still give them money to clothe their children. And don't you tell me I can't. Because I've been called to preach the Bible and take a position that's utterly difficult in one of the most liberal parts of the country. But by the breath of God, I'm going to stand by the Bible until he takes me out. Our Father, I pray that we will love people like Christ and that we will preach the truth we may have to tell them they're in sin, but Jesus died for sinners. Oh, what a message. What a message we have. Make us ministers of reconciliation. May all of our people be salt and light in whatever families, diverse groups they're with. May they bring a divine perspective, bring peace. We're ambassadors of good, you said, 
You made us ambassadors of reconciliation. Don't let us be a part of the hate. Don't let us be, a, and don't let us be more political than we are Christian. Let us be Christians. We are, we are above Caesar. Our ultimate king is neither Republican nor Democrat or Independent, and he's sure not necessarily a Californian. He was a Jew born in Bethlehem, raised on the third day at the right hand of God. That's my king. That's my king. That's my Lord. You're the one we're following, Jesus. We're looking forward to being with you forever, forever and ever. Amen. Forgive my emotion. I'll try to speak. Uh, turn, if you will, to um, 1 Thessalonians. I just want to speak on a verse today and try to illustrate it in Scripture. I may have to stop. We may not get through because um, someone, elders on the front row at uh, 25 after, just pretend like you're stretching. And, and I'll stop because I want us to end in prayer. I want deacons and elders to join me in the front. Um, and uh, we're going to be asking God to heal a nation, heal our community. And uh, let's protect the unborn. And let's thank God that a black man could sit anywhere he wants on the bus, as it ought to be. I just read verse 16 with 17. Rejoice always. And I want to say to the Lord, you got to be kidding. And he says, I'm not. And pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. What in the world are you talking about? Uh, do I ever get to talk to my wife? Yeah. The idea is let prayer be you're on the phone and you never hang up. Doesn't mean you're always talking. It's incessant, persistent prayer. That prayer is to be the spiritual breathing of the believer. That it's just a way of life for a Christian. That it's like inhale, exhale. None of us pray as much as we ought to pray. None of us pray as much as we think we should pray. Even to ever, you can always remain guilty about prayer. I don't pray enough. And that's probably true. But I think some of you have been holding your breath too long. You should breathe a little bit more. And so we all need help in prayer. Uh, Jesus gave two parables in Luke, Luke 11, Luke 18, that are different than all the other parables in this way. Every parable that brings God and wants to tell a story about God in the parables is always a comparison, a comparison to God. God is light. God is light. But in Luke 11 and Luke 18, there are two parables of contrast. God is not like the characters in the story. 
Look at uh, Luke 11. I don't want to settle down in these passages. I just want you to see the flow and what Jesus is saying. In, in Luke 11, the, the uh, disciples heard Jesus praying, and they said, wow, we need to learn how to pray. So Christ rolls out the content of what our praying ought to be. I don't believe this is a Lutheran liturgical, we got to recite this every service or every day. No, it's the content that ought to make up prayer. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Okay, here's the content. Start out with acknowledging and treating God as holy. Ask God to meet your needs. Uh, ask God to lead you and protect you, whatever. Then he goes on to tell a story about it's the parable of the reluctant friend. A, a man has a guest come by his house, and he's not prepared for them. And so at, he notes the story, which of you, if you had a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And will he, he will answer him from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. The idea, when it was in the colder months, the whole family slept together. They didn't have electric blankets, and they didn't have thermostats, okay? So they would all get in the bed together. The locking system in a uh, Palestinian home, many times three or four locks, you know, to secure the house. We're all in bed. The children are in bed with us. It's midnight. It's cold. It's inconvenient. Go away. Go away. I know I'm your buddy, but I'm only your buddy at noon, not at midnight. Don't bother. And they said, watch. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence. Now, that, that doesn't, that word, this is, I'm doing ESV. Uh, th that's kind of an impudent person. We, that, that's a negative connotation. The word is really because of his persistence, but the literal meaning of the word because of his shamelessness. I'm not ashamed to be knocking on your door at midnight because oriental custom demands I feed a guest and I have no food, so I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to not feed my guests. I am not ashamed to just, I know it's inconvenient, get out of bed. It's inconvenient, get out of bed. Jesus said, this is the way I want you to pray. But God's never in bed, is he? God never goes to sleep. God's more than a friend. He's a father. And then he goes on and says, I want you to ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Some say, well, I thought Jesus said don't use vain repetition. That's the key. Vain repetition you don't use in prayer. You don't do prayer beads. You don't do mantras. You can keep on asking, but don't use vain words. 
and think that many words persuade God. By the way, prayer never persuades God. Answered prayer was purchased for you at the cross. It's one of the believer's benefits of being saved. Christ has already bought you the answers. So you're not trying to persuade God. You're coming in cashing in on God. You said you'd hear me if I call. You told me to come even if it's midnight. I'm shameless. I'm coming. And then he says, hey, if an evil dad, just a sinner, can give good gifts to his children, how much more would your father give good gifts? Show up. Don't be ashamed. Keep knocking. Look at Luke 18. Luke 18. He tells about a persistent widow who needs justice, and she goes before a judge that neither fears God nor cares about people. He doesn't love God, and he doesn't love people. She doesn't have a chance. I mean, he doesn't want to be bothered. And watch what he says here. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. You wonder how he ever became a judge. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, this woman is driving me batty. This widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Do you hear Jesus telling this story? Wow. Keep coming. Keep, you get justice if you keep bugging him. He's an unprincipled man. He can care two cents about you. But if you keep showing up, you're going to wear him down. Get out of my court. I'm sick of you. And every man married to a wonderful woman could almost understand this. <laughs> and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him once? Uh, sound like more than once, doesn't it? Ten, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You look at the life of Christ. I mentioned and I wrote down all the praying times in his life. He, he was constantly coming up missing. He'd go out in the wilderness. He'd be gone in the morning. He'd be praying at midnight. Where is he? Where is he? Matthew 14, he went up to the mountain to pray. Matthew 26, he's on the Mount of Olives. He's on the mountain in Mark 6.45. He's in Gethsemane in chapter 14. He goes to the wilderness, Luke 5.16, to pray. Praying, praying. Constantly praying, getting away, spend the night in prayer, get up early to pray. Come on, you're Jesus. You're God in flesh. You don't need to pray. Yes, I do. Because people in the flesh need to rely on the Father for everything. 
And he never had to go to the Father to confess his sin. That ought to keep you active in prayer. Just confessing our attitudes. Always praying. And then you find that description of him in Gethsemane. Did you know it? In all of Christ's miracles, raising the dead, feeding the multitudes, walking on the water, casting demons out of a maniac in Gadara, uh, healing lepers, healing the woman that was bleeding for years. You never read of any place where he was exerted, where it was draining, where he was exhausted. But Hebrews says, along with Mark, when he entered into prayer in Gethsemane, he was wrung out. The perspiration broke out on him so that Luke said it appeared as blood. It might have been. But he was under excruciating, agonizing. He prayed so long that disciples kept going to sleep. It was not a short, uh, Jesus help me, short prayer meeting. Some of you can't imagine praying an hour. Jesus prayed. And he said in Hebrews, he cried loud. You read it, Hebrews 5. He cried loud, and he came as a supplicant. And the word there is, it was a uh, Hebrew word, and rather a Greek word, that meant to bring an olive branch wrapped in wool, which was the approach signal of a supplicant. I need something. I need something. In the days of his flesh, he entered into Gethsemane and began to cry loud, take this cup from me, take this cup from me. It's killing me what I'm facing. I don't want the cross. I, and he was more afraid that he'd be abandoned once he died. And he said that in Psalm 16. I don't want to rot in the grave. And he cried out, he cried out. Some of the most agonizing experiences in your life would be your prayer time where you may be agonizing over a child, over an issue. My son-in-law often tells me when his single mother, he said she would go in the bedroom, Dad, and she'd have to take a towel. She cried and wailed so much, God, help me to raise this boy. God, help me to raise this boy. Now, we don't always pray like that. Those are occasions. Most of us have never prayed that way. But prayer is to be a perpetual way of life that we never sign off. We never sign off. We're always engaged. And I thought to maybe help motivate you, uh, we kind of have this in the hour that changes the, the world and we we tried to pray that somewhat last Sunday night uh, in that little book, uh, The Hour That Changes the World. I think we still have some more. It has a chart how you can spend an hour every day in the presence of God. Let's go through these 10. I will only get probably, if I get through four, we'll do good. You won't, will you come back next Sunday if I have to finish it? Thank you. I'm, going to look, I'm counting on you. Uh, why it seems we should be praying at all times. Number one, we desire the glory of God.
Notice the first thing you say in prayer. I want, I want, I want. No, our Father. And notice he says our. Get over your me Christianity. We're a flock. You don't have an exclusive hold on God. You're in a family. And you ought to be praying about our. Our brothers and sisters say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, and, and that be. And that hallowed means to treat us holy. And he is that, but he said, I want it to be in me. Hallowed be your name in me. I want to treat you hallowed. Thy kingdom come. Not your company come. Not your marriage come. Not your want list come. God's kingdom, God's interest, God's church, God's priorities. If you want God's provision, you've got to get his priorities. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then he'll add this. God's tired of your dog, your cat, and your kids being ahead of him. He's not a heavenly Santa Claus to meet your wondering desire. He's a sovereign king. A sovereign God. Don't try to use him. First of all, treat him as holy. Treat him as holy. Always holy. That's God. For you to even have the right to just bop into his presence and not go through a priest and to go to him without killing a sacrifice, without killing a life, just to show up anytime you want. Oh, treat him holy. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Is God's kingdom interest the first thing you pray about daily? Do you in the morning say, Lord, the most important thing that can happen this day in my life is for me to do your will? I want to do your will today. What do you want me to do? Do you ever pray that way? Or is it my will, my way, my kids, my money, my, 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 my? You've got to start with God. You say, ooh, that's why I don't have a prayer life, because God's not in my life. Well, you're obviously not a saved person yet. But when you become a Christian and a child of God, you're interested in your Father's glory. Two. We ought to desire fellowship with God. Uh, I just, let me read Psalm 42, 1, 2. I'll read several verses. 63, 1. Listen to them. See if this describes you. As a deer pants... For flowing streams, hot, desert, maybe chased, maybe harried, maybe predators on its trail, pants, <sighs> for water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, 
When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalms 84, 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Do you ever pant to be with him for his presence? Sweet hour of prayer, the old song goes. How my soul has often flown to other worlds in just the sweet hour of prayer. If you're not praying, you're missing a feast of getting into God's presence. The big issue is if you eat cotton candy all day, you won't want dinner at night. My dad loves sweets, but he forbid us kids to eat anything sweet on the table until we ate the main course. He said, sweets would destroy your appetite for what's good for you. You don't need all that sugar. And he, he was always, we always had to have a dessert. And if we had no dessert, he'd pour sorghum molasses on a piece of white bread. My father would never eat cornbread. It was forbidden because he grew up on greased cornbread gravy during the Depression. No corn to be served in my house. White flour. And put that sargum molasses. Yuck. But it was sweet. That's all it was to him. He didn't want something sweet. You know, when you're born 1908 and live through a depression in the Midwest, just something sweet. Because he's the eldest of 10 kids, and none of the kids could eat with his father. And if there's anything sweet, John Howard ate it. Then my grandmother brought the 10 kids in. That's the way it was raised. And John Howard, we eat everything that's good, and whatever's left, the kids got. So my father fled at 14. That's why so many of our kids are turned out to be brats. They've never seen hard times. They just don't know. But do you long for the real thing? Aren't you sick of watching TV? Aren't you sick of just being entertained? Aren't you sick? Just do it to me. Do it. This picture is, I pant for you. I, I long to get in your presence. I would actually make the effort. You remember when Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet? You know what? That's your part. Would you go into the closet? Do you have a closet in your house you pray in? A room is the idea. Don't get in there and they hear you kicking and screaming because you get lost in the closet. A room, a room, a private place where I seek God's face. Let me ask you, when's the last time you sought his face? When's the last time you panted for him? Tell the truth. Not panting for him to answer another one of your cheap requests, but you panted for him.
Well, my, one of my great-grandsons, well, A.J., comes to the house. He's always got to want this. I got to play basketball. He wears me out. I want him to come over till he's been there an hour. Because I can only shoot so many hoops at this age. And then he wants to play baseball. Then he wants to go for a walk. Then he, I mean, seven years old, full of energy, energy, energy. And you know what I do? I said, AJ, you know why Grandpa had you over? No. By the way, I want you to buy me some Steph shoes. Uh, uh, AJ, listen, listen to me. Do you know why we had you over? He's going, Grandpa's been craving to hug your daddy and to tell you how much I love you. And then he'll, let's go shoot some hoops. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know? Then I'm going to call Erica, take him home. It's over. <laughs> I want the boy. I want the boy. The shoes are automatic. The hoops are automatic. If he only knew, you can, you got grandpa's wallet in your heart. Just hug me three times and say I'm the greatest grandpa you ever had. You got it. Take it, honey. <laughs> Take it. Huh? Tell me some lies. I don't care. You got it. And God's waiting for us to say, you're the greatest. I just want to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just glad I've got you for a father. I'm glad you want to take me to heaven. I'm glad you forgave me all my sins in Jesus. I can't believe that I've got a gift like you for a father. I want to adore you. I want to love you. I want to tell you there's no one like you. I want you. I want you. What's wrong with us? We're dying on the candy of this world, worldliness and pleasure and this and entertain me and opulence and give me one more thing for me, 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 me. And I, I don't want to be involved with anyone that has any needs. And why would I want to be in need with God? That was when I was poor. That's when you're a poor boy, you need God. That's why Nietzsche and the atheist said Christianity's a poor man's crutch. It's not a poor man's crutch. It's a poor man's new life. It's a new life. I found life in Jesus. I found the fountain of living water. He's my bread. He's my peace. He's my life. He's not a rabbit's foot. He's my God. He's my God. He's worthy. I love him. I love being with him. I love being called by his name. I love his presence. I love his son. I love his spirit. I love what he did for my folks. I love what he's done for you. He's made us brothers and sisters. He, he, no politician made the church. It was a crucified Savior outside the city of Jerusalem that started this, and they tried to kill it off. They killed off all of our preachers. They killed James. They killed Peter. They killed Thomas in India. They killed our founder in 32 AD. This thing ought to be dead. And yet there's nearly a billion of us still on the earth. Why? He's a great God. He's a great God. A great God. You can't snuff him out. 
You cannot snuff him out. He'll outlast all the politicians, and he'll outlast you. You're going to see him sooner than you ever dreamed. Why, when you finally see him, say, I'm sorry I never wanted you very much when I had you. This is personal. I'm going to be an emotional wreck today. I want to stop you. I can't get any further. But I just told that boy here the other day, I was having to discipline this little AJ. He's not here, so I talk about him. He's got a hammer, he's got a hammer lock on me. I've been trying to rescue him. And he, the other day, he was fussy, and I was having to discipline him and get on him. I said, AJ, stop it. Stop it. And he said, I had his attention. I can get his attention because I'm pre-Spock. I know how to get their attention. <laughs> and I looked up those little brown eyes were looking at me. And I said, son, how much longer do you think your grandpa's going to be alive? I buried my dad at 63. Grandpa's going to be 73. You don't have me much, much longer. Scared the daylights out of me, but that's what I told him. I said, you're not sure how long you're going to have your grandpa. I don't want to waste one moment not loving on you. I don't want to waste one moment. I don't bring you over here to discipline. I bring you over here to love you. And say, I moved you all the way from South Carolina because I wanted a little brown boy to know he's loved. He's got worth. And that this white grandpa he's stuck with would go to the ends of the earth to let him know Christ and to know he's no accident. Be sure how you treat these out-of-wedlock children. God loves them. God loves them. God's got a plan for them. God says, I wish you'd love me. I don't know what it'd take for you to want me. It costs me everything to want you. I just wait for people to say, I got to pray. I got to pray. I, I'm praying because I'm wanting to go to him. I wish we had the song, I'm going to the king. I'm, I'm tired of the church thing. I'm tired of this thing. I'm going to the king. I'm with the king. I'm with the king. I'm with the king in this church. I'm sick and tired of people and all their petty wants and wishes and this. Oh, if we've made this thing in our image, none of us could stand it. It ought to start looking like Jesus. It's his church. He bought it. He bought it. None of you shed a drop of blood. I, I told the elders yesterday, I'm not the head of anything. I'm just a redeemed sinner down here trying to serve God. I'm not the head of anything. I'm not the head of Valley. Oh, man, you, you better start looking for another church right now if you think I'm the head. You're in the wrong place. But I'm serving to Christ that he's the head of his church. He's high and lifted up, and he's holy. He's holy. He's holy. I want him. Sometimes I can't stand you and you can't stand me, but I want him. And he makes me repent so I can love you. And whether you know it or not, oh, I'm a thousand miles behind him. 
I'm trying to learn to love like he loves you. Oh, if I could only tell you how much he loves you. I just wish I knew how to convey it. But he's got to get through this whole mind to mind. And I got to repent. Why am I so far from loving like you, Jesus? I want to love like you. 